Welcome to episode 27 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's guest is the one and only big buck serial killer, Dan Infault. In this episode, Dan and I discuss October tactics for targeting big bucks. We look at differing approaches for early October and states with September and October openers, food sources, hunting pressure, the importance of access routes, and a whole lot more. Guys, before we jump into the podcast, I want to take a minute to ask everyone listening to subscribe to this YouTube channel. I'm closing in on a thousand subscribers on YouTube, and that means I'll soon be able to earn ad revenue from YouTube. That ad revenue will also mean I'll have more time and dedication to producing more podcasts. So if you enjoy this episode or any of my previous episodes and you want to show your support, hit that button and subscribe. Subscribing is a free and easy way to show your support for this channel. So thanks in advance. I'd also appreciate it if you shared this podcast or any of your other favorites with a friend. I also want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. October archery openers are just around the corner, and now is your last chance to outfit your gear with the number one gear silencing solution on the market. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, what are you waiting for? Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, in today's episode, I got the one and only Dan in fault. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. So, Dan, I first asked you to be on this episode well, a week or two ago. I jokingly said that last year we did our early season episode, and you shot a really nice buck, and I shot a pretty nice one, too. So I wanted to have you back on to discuss October tactics, and maybe we'll both shoot good bucks in October this year. <laughs> that would be good. That would be. Hey, I'll, I'll take it whenever I can get it, but we'll call the shot. We'll say October. All right. The first thing I want to discuss, Dan, is, and this is a little maybe out of your wheelhouse since Wisconsin's got a mid-September opener generally, but for the guys that are dealing with an October 1st opener, you know, states like Michigan, Iowa, Pennsylvania, I'd assume that you'd agree there's probably some differences between early September and early October opener. So in a state like those previously mentioned, what kind of setup would you be looking for for an early October opener? Now, early October, I'd probably, you know, like right around the opener for most states is October 1st. I would be looking around oak trees. I'd be looking, uh, if there's not acorns, I'd be looking around, you know, crops. I'd be looking, you know, bedding areas around those areas, obviously. Or, uh, water sources if it's still real hot in your area you know or you get an exceptionally hot couple of days i'd still be looking at the same things i look at uh, in september in wisconsin having the luxury of hunting september which a lot of people that are listening to this probably don't have i i see a trend you know what i see is um when our season opens it's rocking i still got a little bit of summer patterns matter of fact i'd really love to see them open wisconsin on september 1st and maybe have dough only, I mean, uh, bucks only for three weeks or something, because I think the whole reason they don't open it earlier is because the, the fawns are a little young yet. But uh, there's plenty of places that do have buck seasons early, and I think that'd be cool because you really have active daylight time at that frame. And for us in Wisconsin, I think it gets a little worse. You know, by the time Oz comes around, we've had a little pressure. Where I think uh, if you're coming in from, like, um, Michigan or you know, one of these states that has uh, an October 1st opener, you're going into it where they haven't had much pressure yet. So um, it's a little bit better hunt. Not much, though. But what I have seen is that, um, you know, that window of movement of getting those uh, big bucks to move a lot longer distance like they do in September. Like, you can get them on, you know, food plot edges and stuff if they've been unharassed they're bedding close enough in September. October, not so much. They start pushing back a little usually. But they might have a very short window of movement in that early October window. But I don't see much of a difference in, in my killing um, as I do in my earlier September because I'm hunting close enough to bedding that they still move by me in daylight. I'm just noticing it's a lot more towards the edge of dark, you know, that I'm, I'm getting those shots. 
that's the biggest difference for me. But I think if a guy is hunting uh, the standard rotating through the tree stands, he's going to see a very slow period in early October. You know, if he's not hunting in a spot for a reason, you know, if he hasn't done his homework. One of the things we're talking about now, October, and how that's a little bit different, and one of the most maybe debated or misunderstood topics, I think, is the October lull. So let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, for you, Dan Infall, do you believe October lull, true or false? Um, if you force me into an answer, I would say true. But there's a lot of buts to go along with that. Now, most people tell me that the October lull is mid-October. That I don't agree with. To, to me, I see a lull in, in daytime movement um, around October 1st. You know, right around that time period when, when it hits a, a low, maybe the first week of October. Um, but I, you got to remember, I'm hunting a state that allows me to start early September and go through, you know, October. So I start out with really good movement. It goes down and then it goes back up into rut, you know. But a lot of people will call that October lull like the mid-October. And for me, I start seeing, you know, kind of some start of some rut activity mid-October. You know, like around the 15th is when I start seeing the very start of deer getting interested in does or the bucks getting interested in does. That's the October 15th is when I start hunting uh, mornings because I start seeing daylight movement in the mornings. So my idea of an October lull isn't the same as other people's. I think it's got several definitions. Um, so I don't believe in some definitions, but I believe in my definition. <laughs> I think it slows down at the beginning of the month, but most people don't see that. Cause I mean, if you're from Michigan, when you start hunting, it just keeps getting better because you start out in the wall, in my opinion. So it just keeps getting better into the rut. But if you started out in, in, in say Wisconsin and the hunting is, is really good. And then all of a sudden it drops down and then it goes back up. You'd probably say there's a wall. Sure. But the people that say October, 15th like mid-october i don't know where they're getting that from Uh, i don't see it well in my opinion one of the biggest contributors to a perceived lull might be hunting pressure so give me your thoughts on how the hunting pressure in both uh, wisconsin where you got the september opener and a state like michigan where you'd have an october first opener would affect a perceived lull well you know um i know michigan guys won't want to hear this um they like to complain um, but, but, uh, where I'm at in Wisconsin, there's really heavy pressure. It's a lot like when I hunted in Michigan, there wasn't much difference pressure wise. And the pressure comes on pretty heavy to begin with, but you know, I find ways to find where the deer go to get outside of the pressure. Um, but pressure certainly has an impact on it. My early October is probably a little worse than Michigan's because pressure wise, uh, Michigan hasn't seen pressure yet. I've already got guys in the woods. I mean, if you go back uh, 20 years, nobody hunted in our September range. You'd, you'd see one or two cars out there. And um, the common phrase would be, you got to wait till it cools down, you know, sure. stuff like that. Or, or I'm not ruining my spot till rut. But people are becoming a little more educated and learning that there's rut spots, there's early season spots, there's ways to hunt in early season. And, and you can still kill giant bucks in early season. As a matter of fact, you can kill them a little better than rut sometimes. So. Uh, now that you're catching on to that, this area is really getting pressured early season. I mean, in, in early September, um, like I think we're opening on the 17th this year. Um, I'm not positive on it, but I think that's what the date's going to be. When we open, I mean, these parking lots will be full like it's like it's uh, the second week in a gun season. There'll be a lot of people out there. And uh, rut gets even more. I mean, these parking lots just fill up here. I mean, it's nuts. There's people everywhere. So... Um, pressure is an impact here as well as, as it is in Michigan or whatever. And, uh, the difference is, is that, uh, we've had pressure for three weeks when October 1st comes. Michigan hasn't. So I think they might see a little better time frame in that opening week of October. Well, I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned early season and I kind of mentioned this in the opening of the podcast. You aired a really great buck early season last year in your video recap of that hunt. You mentioned that you thought that particular bedding area was only used during the early season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even think it was being used into October at all. And that's kind of my question. How might that bedding area have changed in October, and why might that buck have moved on to a different bedding area? What was it about that that made you think 
it was only early season. Well, they were bedding in a willow thicket that uh, those leaves start falling off in early October. Those trees are usually pretty bare come like uh, second week of October. So I mean, maybe they could be there into October a little bit, but it, it don't take long and those leaves are gone. Do you think that's just the amount of cover or the shade that offers both? What do you think it is about? Oh, yeah. They don't want to bed in the open sun. And that was the only cover they had in that bedding area. And that bedding area had um, all the willow brushes rubbed like crazy. So I knew that there was a buck bed in there. There's probably 50 beds in there that you could see that were indented into the ground or bedded so much. And yet, there is just like a summer and into just into uh, hard antler that there's leaves in there. So if they're rubbing those trees, they had hard antlers. So that's telling me that the early season they're in there. Certainly they're not in there in pre-rut. You know, um, there's not going to be leaves in there in, in late October. So that told me that they're, that those beds are being used in early season. And uh, that's why I was sitting there early. Well, it seemed to work out pretty well for you. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, you, you know, you look at that stuff that is a guess, but when you, you see something that blatant where the leaves are going to be gone, you know, they're in there at this time frame, and the, the rubbing tells you, well, they're hard antlers, so you you know they're there after summer. And, and the rubs weren't pasture rubs. They're in the beds. You know, I mean, there's only re- one reason the buck's walking into that tangle to a bed, is to bed down. So so if he's rubbing right there in the beds, that's... uh a telltale sign now, those are some great tips there to kind of decipher the sign that you're seeing postseason and decide or try to make an educated guess like you said when that buck is there and, and a lot of good tips there right well let's stay on the lull but switch gears a little bit based on your experiences how do you think changing food sources impact a perceived lull oh that could be pretty huge because i think right around uh, the start of october um, most of the places I hunt, the acorns are all cleaned up and there's a shift from acorns. There's also, there just seems to be a shift from green plants. Like right now, when I'm out looking out right now, and remember we're starting hunting in, in a few weeks, right? Yeah. And I walk around right now and I, I, I look in the woods. I've been in the woods. I was in the woods today. So I was almost a little late for your podcast <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, all the stinging nettles are being eaten. All the, uh, Orange julian is being eaten. There's some plant I'm trying to figure out what it is now that's just getting demolished. But it's all green, wet, you know, plants that got a lot of liquid in them. They're getting hammered. As a matter of fact, um, I put a clover plot in my yard, and they're walking through the pl- clover plot to get to the weeds on the edge of it. Hmm. These, uh, you know, like uh, real liquidy plants. They're just like the kind of you just snap off, and liquid kind of like a water kind of runs out of them. They're eating those like crazy. And uh, all that stuff dries up come you know, October. It starts, to, it starts to go away. And they start getting more into crops and, you know, uh, apples and stuff. I mean, they're always on acorns once acorns start dropping. I mean, they're just barely dropping here, and I'm seeing a huge shift to acorns right now. Okay. I went to uh, uh, some public land yesterday, got out of my truck and walked uh, 50 yards from the parking lot. And a giant, like 150, 160 inch buck tore ass from underneath a, uh, uh, oak tree there. And it's all open prairie grass next to the parking lot. So he came all the way out of that swamp already in daylight and was eating right next to the parking lot. Well, that'll get you excited. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was nice to see. I should see a shooter in that spot because I hadn't seen one yet there. And then the last thing I want to touch on, on the lull or perceived lull is you know, October deer putting on their winter coats, and it seems like to me, at least in my experience, the temperatures have a lot more of an impact than daylight movement. So, what do you think about the weather that time of year? And are you purposely targeting cold fronts like some of the other guys that are out there? You know, um, I like a good cold front, but I don't think it's a game changer that much. I think it's a game; it changes a few things. But I know some people live and die by them. And, uh, you, you know, if I know where they're bedding, they're moving anyways. The difference is in a cold front, you can move a little further. You know, swamps are, uh, you've hunted them. They, you can have yep. a spot where there's like seven or eight buck bedding areas in a row. You're hunting the end, and the furthest ones are 250, 300 yards off. Well, some of those deer will get to you pretty late. On a cold front, those 
particular spots, those deer will get a little further, might make it to you in daylight. So I might pick and choose my spots a little different. You know, might, might hunt one of those good spots like that or lay off of it until I get that, you know, cold front. Okay. That makes sense. Another thing with the, the supposed lull too, is you got to remember too, um, you, you know, being from a state where the majority of the season is outside of the rut, I've learned and adapted to a lot of non-rut tactics. The majority of people in a state that opens like say October 1st, they go 15 days in and they start getting slight rut activity and then it, it picks up from there. Most of those guys, I mean, then they hunt gun as soon as the rut's over or kind of at the tail end of the rut. They really only know rut. So if they're hunting with rut tactics at the beginning of October, they're not going to see crap. And a lot of guys just hunt the same tactic like that the whole season. You know, you got to get outside that box. I've definitely been guilty of that in, in a prior lifetime, so I can relate. <laughs> Well, I want to move on from, well, kind of moving on from the lull, just different topic here. Let's talk about accessing your hunting location. Now, you've talked about access numerous times, and in my opinion, how a guy accesses his stand during mid-October is critical. Uh, like you said, maybe that early October, probably more so than any other time of the year. So talk to me about why it's so critical to be knowledgeable of specific bedding areas and to have a good idea about a proper access route. Well. If you don't really know where the deer bed, but you know about and you're guessing on it, you're going to have problems because a lot of times the biggest bucks will set up to watch you. And until you start scouting those beds and realize that, you know, when you actually look at the beds, you start thinking, holy cow, this is bulletproof. You know, they'll either set up to uh, see you or to wind you, you know, and they'll set up near access routes, near parking lots. They do some crazy stuff. Now, they won't bed where people walk. You know, if people go through there on a regular basis, they won't they won't bed there. But they'll bet adjacent to it and watch it. You know what I mean? They'll watch the access routes and they'll watch where you're coming from. But their their betting is set up um in a way that they're they're really watching out for themselves. So if you don't understand that, uh you got issues getting close. And if you're not getting close, especially in that early October frame, you're not getting them to move far enough to shoot them, you know, in daylight. You gotta remember uh hunting these beds. Uh, a lot of times I can hear or see the buck get up from the bed. It might be a half an hour, hour before daylight, and I'm shooting them at closing time. You know, 75, 100 yards from the bed. So if you're 200 yards back or 300 yards back, what chance do you have on that buck? Sure, every now and then one of them gets up and walks past me, you know, an hour before uh, closing. That's pretty seldom, but it happens. But that's why some people occasionally get a big buck. But if you want to get them on a regular basis, you got to get inside that window of that uh, daylight movement. And that's my thing, or my forte, is to, to move into that narrow window of movement and not do it to a point of, of overdoing it and spooking the deer out of there. I want to touch on two things there, Dan. The first one, and I don't know how old the video is, but it's probably when I first started coming around the hunting beast. So let's say 2013, you had a video where you were setting up on a buck near the road and the parking lot was not super far away and it's not the the 400 pound slob buck this was a different one but you did a, a real big loop to get around on that buck instead of just coming in off the road or coming direct from the parking lot so what i'd like to know is what about that situation made you know that that was going to be the best access like what how did it set up and and why did you decide to take that access route well, I knew that because I knew where the, the deer were bedding. I knew what the wind was doing. I knew what the thermals were doing. It's because I really studied, you know, I did my homework. I studied the area up. I, you know, you pre-scout it. You, even now, I mean, now I don't even really have to pre-scout those areas. I can take a guess. But after looking at enough bedding areas, I can look at an area I know how the deer are going to bed. I know how they're going to come out. I can I can sense where, they're, where I'm going to see them just based on what I've seen year after year looking at bedding areas because it, it just repeats itself. There's certain terrains that hold them. There's certain reasons they're in certain spots. Sometimes you can't even explain it. It's like instinctive. But you've seen it so many times that something clicks with you, but you don't even, it's hard to say. But usually it's because of land features, like uh, points, islands, or, you know, like tall trees that are in uh, inside the marsh, in the wet stuff. You see a little island, you're like, oh, he's going to come off of there. Then you get out to, you know, your, your, you look at where you're going to hunt, and you can kind of start seeing the trails coming out. And if you haven't pre-scouted it, you can take a pretty good guess, you know, if you've, if you've looked at some stuff. But the best thing you can do is get in there in January or February and just really scout the hell out of it. 
learn those bedding areas, learn how the trails come in and out of there, and then just do not go back till hunting time. But a lot of guys do that, but what they don't do is they don't sit there, look at where they're going to put their trees, they're, they're standing in a tree, think about different trees for different wind options, look at their axis is really close. I and mean, when you're in there, you have to do everything. If you have to clip a branch, do it. Don't come back. Don't keep going back to that spot. Every time you go in there, it's like a hunt. So you, you go in there, you get what you got to get done. You know, like, you know, January, February, March, you know, somewhere in there, maybe even a little into April. And then you just get out of there and leave it alone. You, you know, then when you go in there, you'll know your access. You'll know what you have to do. And in a lot of cases, if they're sitting in their bed and watching a parking lot or the, the wind comes from the parking lot, um, you got to walk, you know, let your wind blow at them because they're used to that. They're smelling the people going out there, walking a big circle, come back around from behind them where they're not expecting you, where they think you just went on like everybody else. Yeah, and you made a great point there. When I, again, when I first started hanging around the beast, one of the things or mistakes that I made early on was exactly what you just said. I'd get into an area that I knew was a buck bedding area. I was getting to the point where I could pick those out, you know, based on everything I'd picked up from the forum. But then I would get so excited that I found a good area, I wouldn't do all the other things. I wouldn't pick out my tree. I wouldn't think about the wind as much as I should have been or what the thermals were going to do. So that's a great point for anyone that's newer to these tactics is, you know, don't let that initial excitement overwhelm you. You got you to gotta still consider all the details while you're in there, too. Yeah, you got to remember, too, you got to be able to make a shot. I mean, a lot of times the guy will just look around, oh, I'm going to sit right there. And then they get out there. They can't figure out exactly what tree they are that we're in. They have to look around a little bit. They make a little noise. Uh, they get their scent where they don't want it. They finally get to their tree, and then they don't have shooting lanes. They end up having to break a branch or something. And you ruin the hunt. So I really take my time to really do the detective work the one time I'm in there scouting. Well, taking your time, that's a great segue to uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about is, and you've discussed this before, but I just think it's so important that it's worth mentioning again and probably again and again. Modern society, right? Everyone, including myself, nine to five, I'm always in a rush. I'm always wound up. And then I get out to the woods and it's easy to carry that energy into the woods. So what are you doing when you get out there? Obviously you're taking your time and uh, really slowing down, but you have any sort of routine or what are you thinking about when you get out to like get into your hunter's mindset? Yeah. So I come, I come out of a um, machine shop environment where I'm running a crew, we're doing a a fast paced thing where we're, uh, we're doing repair jobs for people um, where they got, you know, they got a, a press down where it's a million dollars an hour for that press being down. So they're like, we got to get this out. We got to, you're running around trying to get this stuff going and you're just fast paced all day or I'm making some sort of uh, product for somebody, but they're, you know, they're on you to, to get th- things done fast. And then you're racing home because you're, you want to get out hunting. So you're like putting the pedal to the metal and pushing as hard as you can. And you run in, you eat as fast as you can. And then when you go out, you got to slow down. It's hard to change. You know, you know what I mean? It's hard to get out of that fast paced routine and slow yourself down. And I find myself, you know, I try to walk slow. And then I'm all of a sudden speeding back up because it's, you know, built into me from all these years of, you know, you know, working for a living. So what I need to do is when I get within like a hundred yards of where I want to go, I usually stop and, and uh, especially if it's a calm day. And I just sit on a log or something for a little while and just sit there motionless and just think and let my body just slow down and my thoughts slow down and stuff. Um, I know that sounds weird, but it's hard to slow down just from, you know, while you're walking, just think slow down. It's easier to let your, your metabolism, everything about you slow down and not even move forward until you hit that, you know, and then go forward. At least for me, um, I'm sure it's probably not everybody's thing, but uh, for me, it's like that, you know. I got, I got to stop and just hold up for a while in order to, uh, slow myself down. Yeah. I find myself, uh, for a couple of reasons, like I said, the nine to five and I get so excited about hunting that I'm real wired up. And I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. Probably everyone's got their own routine, but when I start getting in somewhere, you know, semi close, I really try to start focusing on just like the plants and stuff, looking for browse, anything to, to get kind of focused in on the moment and get the, uh, the hustle and bustle out of my mind. What, what I'm doing when I'm walking through there is uh, I'm usually uh, trying to, you know, stop every few feet, scan around. And you got to remember, I'm, be- I'm hunting really close to the bedding. So I'm looking at the best route to get through without making noise. So 
So I'm like, okay, you know, instead of just following a trail until all of a sudden it hits a pile of brush you're trying to get through, I'm looking ahead as far as I can saying, oh, okay, I got to take this way over here to get around that deadfall. Otherwise, I'm going to have to climb over that and that's going to make noise. So I'm going to have to do this or that. If I go over there, the wind's going to do this or whatever. And then when I get in close, uh, a lot of times, based on changing winds or something, I might not be in the exact tree I want to be in or whatever. Or if I'm going into a spot blind, I'm going to go in real slow and I'm going to look at the trees, kind of move towards one that looks like the right one, get closer, reanalyze, and look at the landscape, look at the shape of the ground, how's the wind, how's the thermals going to drop in the evening time. When it gets calm in the evening, the air is going to follow the ground. So I'm going to look at the, you know, I don't want to get above the deer that are bedded, you know, like on a ridge that's right above where the deer come out of the swamp. There's a reason they're bedding at that base of that swamp because in the evening, the thermal's going to drop right down to them. You know, um, so I'm thinking about those things as I'm going in there and looking at, okay, what angle do I have to get on to get outside of that, uh, the air currents that are here? What, you know, what tree can I get in? Looking from a distance what my shooting lanes are. And really, it can take me a half an hour, 30 minutes to get to my tree once I'm in the area. If an area is complex, some areas aren't complex. Some areas you look in there and you know which tree you got to be in or you've pre-scouted it, you know. Exactly. No, a lot, of, a lot of great tips in there too. I want to move on to uh, trail cameras, Dan. And for people that don't follow your channel regularly, they might not know that you had some issues recently with the theft of some of your trail camera cards. And unfortunately, this seems like a too common occurrence in the hunting community. You know, it's not rampant, but it definitely happens. And that can be real frustrating. So give me a recap about how you handled that situation and, and what ended up happening at the end there. Well, before we hear about Dan's trail camera difficulties, I want to take a break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by today's guest, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2 pound package including the fastening strap. Huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. Well, I had... Um I had COVID, so I wasn't checking my cameras real regularly. I was uh, I was right in the middle of it, so I wasn't feeling good in the evening. I went to bed, and uh, when I got up in the morning, I checked the cameras that I hadn't checked the evening before, and uh, I had a picture of a dude walking past the camera, and then um, a short time later, he's coming back, and he's staring right at the camera, and the camera was disabled shortly after that, minutes after that. So um, I, I uh, got out of bed. No, this is the next morning. Sure. Unfortunately, if I would have checked it when it when it went off, I could have been at the parking lot. You know. Um, but anywho, I uh, I got up, put my clothes on, put my boots on, drove over there, walked out there, and I had two cameras. One was a non-cell camera, and one was a cell cam. And I went to the non-cell cam first, and the card was missing, and it was turned off. So I took the camera down, walked over to the other camera, the cell cam, opened it up, and the card's missing, and it was turned off. So I looked at the ground. The ground's real muddy. Um, there's my tracks, Rick's tracks, and one other set of tracks. And they went right past the camera and came back like I saw the person on the camera. And they went around. There's the same tracks were behind the uh, camera. They're kind of unique tracks. They're tied wee boot tracks, which uh, I'm very used to because I was uh, helping tight we sell boots for a while. Sure. And uh, I, I was able to pick up the track and follow it to a ridge. And then I, yeah, I couldn't follow it up the ridge, but it was on a tunnel of a trail where you really couldn't get off it too easy. And every now and then I'd see the scuff of the boot 
and where there was a couple breaks in the trail, I was able to go up and down and make sure there wasn't a break off. And then I hit another trail camera. And that trail camera was up a lot closer to the to the other side of the property, quite a ways from mine, but I was pretty certain that that person went past that trail camera. So I'm thinking, well, this could be his trail camera. And if it's not, it's so blatantly obvious that I would be sure he'd just go over and take the card if he took mine, right? Yeah. So uh, I went around to the back of the camera. I looked at the camera. It, it was uh, put up legally, which means it had the guy's name, phone number, ENR number, all that stuff on it. I opened up the bottom of the camera without going in front of it. I, I turned it off, took the card out, took the data off the card, and put it back. I didn't remove the data. I left the guy's stuff on it. I just copied it. And the only reason I did that is because it is, and by the way, it's legal. Before anybody starts okay. saying it's illegal, it's not. It's totally legal if okay. your camera's not locked. But ethically, I would not do that. I only did it in, in the eyes of trying to figure out who this guy is, like investigative-wise. Sure. So um, I closed the camera. I turned it back on, left it just the way I found it without going in front of it. Went back to the house, looked at the card, and the, the person that was uh, in front of my camera was in front of that camera a few minutes later running towards the parking lot. Huh. I don't have any proof that he did it other than what I just told you, which yeah. draw your own conclusions. <laughs> yeah. So I looked up, I, I looked up the person who owned the trail camera on the hill and actually, um, I ran into that guy in the parking lot, not the same guy. I thought at first I thought it was, but I ran into him. I called him later and realized it was the same guy I ran into in the parking lot. And that guy freaked out when I told him my cameras were messed with. And he ran back there because he, he said he had 10 cameras out there. Oh, wow. And he called me later and he said that none of his cameras were messed with. Only mine. Which I did video where I put those cameras. I didn't say the property or anything. And I used a fake map of the property. So you couldn't tell it was the same property. It was sure. just similar. Um, but if you're local, you'd know where those cameras were if you watched the video. So... I decided the best route, to do, the best thing to do, and here's, here's the way I looked at it. I mean, it's just a couple of cards, granted, right? Yeah. But, I mean, that's the stuff that escalates. I mean, you start taking people's cards, then this guy thinks that guy did it, and that guy thinks this guy did it. Somebody's slashing tires next, and then there, you know, there's fights breaking out, and then there's sabotaging going on. And, you, you know, how about we just all be honest, you know, and be nice to each other, right? Yeah. So yeah. I thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to put out a video and uh, let the public, you, you, you know, um, view what happened and uh, think about this. I mean, you could have some kid at his first year hunting. He, he saved up for a year to get that, buy that camera. You know, you could have some kid who got that for a birthday gift. You could, you know, you could have a seasoned hunter. You could have a disabled hunter. You could have some elderly hunter that doesn't even have an income anymore. You know, you know, you don't even know who you're taking that from. And it's, it's obviously not a thief in my eyes, not a blatant thief. I mean, it's, it's theft. Don't take me wrong. Yeah. But it's somebody who thinks that they're doing something like retaliatory because otherwise they just take your camera, you know? So there's some sort of like uh, you're in my area kind of thing, uh, you, you know, is the way I take it, you know? Okay. But any, anywho, I figured if I put a video out there and uh, what evidence I had on it, that uh, people would come forward. And they did. My phone rang off the hook. Naming the person that was in the, the, on the camera, naming you know, um, the person who owned the other camera. A lot of good things came of it. And I, and I turned it into the DNR. And uh, surprisingly, our warden was real eager to help with it, which I was glad because, you know, it's you know, $20 worth of cards. But uh, he seems like a good guy. And he, he uh, wanted to work on the case. As a matter of fact, he at first, there was some controversy whether it was police or it was DNR. And he said, well, if it turns out that it's a police citation, I can, I can do the investigation and turn it over to the police. He said that he wanted to be involved. It turned out there is a citation he could write because it was on DNR land. But uh, I was in the yard one day, and uh, the person that uh, was on the camera came walking up my driveway and walked up to me and uh, told me that... Uh, He's the person on the camera, but he didn't take the uh, the cards. I asked him how the camera got shut off while he was there, and if he saw the person that was turning it off, he said no. I don't know where I can go from there. The warden interviewed him too. Um, apparently, uh, he even called the warden 
because uh, I named the warden in the video. Um, without me telling the warden, he called the warden himself. And then the warden went over and interviewed him. The warden interviewed the other guy that's got the cameras out there and a few other people. And uh, as of right now, the, the case isn't closed. But without any further evidence, I don't think there's much we can do. And it's not really that uh, I want to see anybody get charged out of this. I just want some people to think. You know what I mean? I just want to see some people uh, think about what could happen if, if they're out there messing with people's ca- cameras. Not only to the people that they're affecting, because it seems like nowadays people really don't care what they do to other people. But you can start thinking about what you're doing to yourself. I mean, you know, if you're messing with my cameras, I got a pretty big reach. You know what I'm saying? And you don't know whose cameras you're messing with. Yeah, prob- probably the worst card you could have stolen in the whole country. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I, I mean, uh, I haven't looked lately, but I think that video's got about 100,000 views right now. Wow. And freaking everybody in this county watches the videos. I mean, uh, I, I got messages from uh, people high up in the county, like in the county board and stuff, telling me uh, 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 that was such a great video about the card. So everybody's yeah. watching those videos, you know. Especially, I, I mean, everybody's watching them. I'm, I don't mean it like that. But, I mean, in my home county, yeah, I think everybody that's serious about public land hunting is probably watching those videos. So. I almost feel a little guilty for, or bad for that guy because he's got to be feeling pretty bad and feel pretty guilty. But uh, but I got no hard feelings. I just move on from it. The real thing was just to get people thinking. Yeah, and that was the whole whole reason I brought it up because one, it was a kind of an interesting storyline, and like you said, there's no definitive proof. People can draw their own conclusions, but as far as the law is concerned, there's there's no hard evidence. It doesn't sound like. But yeah, like you said, could be a kid, could be an old person could be the most famous hunting personality on YouTube right now and uh, <laughs> could not work out very well for you. And, you know, like I said, it's just a card, but still those cost money. And I think any hunter would say, you don't care about the card so much. You care about what's on it. And that's really what you'd be bummed out about losing. So, yeah, I, I think I would go a little further too and say, um, you know, you know, first off, I really personally, I don't, I can't say that that, the person that was in that video took their cards. I don't know that. Right. I just know that he was in front of the camera and a little short time after that, it got shut down and the card got taken out of it. That's all I, I know for a fact. But after the DNR got done interviewing everybody, I want to be careful how I say this. Sure. He had wrapped up all of his interviews and it was a couple days later, not even, I think it was the next day. I came home from scouting pulled in my driveway and I had a construction crew here working and, uh, they were, uh, working on my building here and they had stuff all over my driveway. So I parked my truck off to the side. And when I got up in the morning and now normally I would park my truck about 10 feet further than what it was right in front of my, uh, home security cameras and right underneath a, uh, a trail camera that I got aiming down the driveway, but it was just outside of that view. But it just didn't have enough range. It just didn't pick up my door. If it would have took a picture, it would have got whoever was there. But somebody came up my driveway in the middle of the night sometime and put the missing cards on my my driver's side window. Matter of fact, if they would have stepped out to the front of the car and put them on the windshield, I'd have them on video. That's how close it was. Wow. The card that was in the regular camera was was uh, either white clean or it never took a picture. I was unable to recover anything off the card, even even using some uh, modern technology. But the other card that was in the cell camera was left alone. I had the p- same pictures that were on it that were sent to me. Yeah. But the one thing about it was that it was in the locked position. So it might have been a person didn't know a lot about it, maybe couldn't unlock it or didn't know how. You know, I have no idea. All I know is I, I, whoever it was felt guilty enough to, to bring the cards back. Yeah, and that does say something because if he's just looking to be innocent, you're taking some pretty big risks coming here, putting him on my window. I would have much rather he knocked on the door and said he was sorry. But you know, I'll meet him halfway. I get the cards back. Um, the funny part is, is I, I do have uh, uh, perimeter alarms around my yard that uh, when they're broke, they set off an alarm in my house in my bedroom. And they never went off. Um, I don't have them everywhere, but the common ways that somebody would come through my yard, they would set them. 
Dan, the whole reason I wanted to bring that story up is, like you said, get people thinking. And I think overall, the vast majority of sportsmen and women are pretty honest stand-up people. But for whatever reason, it seems like this particular issue with messing with the cameras goes on more than it should. So it's a good reminder from someone who's got a, a big voice in you know, the community to say, knock it off and just mind your business, right? Because there's, I mean, not that you would have been thrilled about it, but nothing would have prevented that guy from putting up a camera right next year is getting his own data, right? Right, right. And and um, I'm not that way. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty nice and easygoing guy, you know? I, if somebody was really having a hard time with me hunting in the area, I'd just move on. You know, that's just the way I am. And literally, I really wasn't um, looking for a hunting spot. I'm doing a trail camera study where I'm studying how deer bed and how they come in and out of bedding and, uh, frequency and stuff. And, uh, so it was kind of annoying to have that, that interrupted in this way. And then I, I ended up having to take the cameras out of there and start over in a new area, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm not really a big on a guy, big on, uh, trail cameras. They're a huge tool and stuff, but I think they just burn up a lot of time and they get you chasing, chasing, uh, ghosts, you know, where, hunting with a method, you know, the way I hunt, um, just getting enough intel to know that there's a buck there and then hunting them down seems to work so much better. I agree. And to, to try the time with the trail camera and stuff. And I think you burn up so much time working with the things. Even if you use cell cameras, crap goes on, batteries get low, things are going on. And then you're out chasing the stuff when you should be hunting and you're, you're checking cameras and you're filtering through pictures. And it's just, it's just so much easier to just go after them bucks, uh, the old fashioned way, but I do like using the cameras for, uh, getting data for getting historical data and for learning things about deer. I'm with you. I've went the full spectrum. Uh, when I started hunting, you know, I was younger and trail cameras weren't as big. I didn't have any. Um, when I was still living in Michigan at one point I was running up to 15 conventional cameras. And then when I moved to Montana, I haven't run a camera in the last three years. Granted I moved to Montana. So the hunting's better, but I've actually killed, uh, like my top four out of my five bucks since I've quit running cameras. Um, I, I you know, I've, I've, I'm in a better area and I've learned a lot over the last five, 10 years. So I can't say it's just a camera thing, but I'm with you. You, you can burn up a lot of time and energy. So, so, I mean, you, you look at me and I, uh, I've ran cameras, uh, forever, right? Not, not a ton of them, but I'll put one or two out and, and, and check some things. And, and, and literally when I was younger, obviously I, I used them a little heavier, just kind of like, young guys do now right yep i can only recall one deer one buck out of all the bucks i ever killed i can recall one buck that i killed because of that i got from a trail camera that's a pretty crazy stat because you've killed a lot of bucks correct now i can say that there's three or four that i have killed because i learned about them because of a trail camera but usually it's a year later it's Two months later, it's not where the camera was. It's just that I'm hunting that area because now I know the buck's there. But there's one buck that I killed because of the camera, and that one was uh, on private land in Iowa where the landowner was running cameras. And he had, like, uh, I don't know, like 50 cameras out. Every every food plot, every trail, everything had a camera on it. And I just stopped and checked the camera, and I noticed for three days in a row there was a buck in front of it in daylight in the evening that was a nice buck. So I sat there that evening and shot it. <laughs> um, that's the only t- that's the only time I ever uh, got one with a camera. And I would not have shot that buck without the camera because I would have never sat over the top of an open food plot at that time of the year. Sure, but the camera didn't. Cameras don't lie. Yeah, private land in Iowa. They're just on the track like a train, right? They just come around the same time every day. <laughs> kind of true. Yeah, <laughs> kind of true. Yeah. Well. Well, let's uh let's get switch gears here again we'll get off the uh the, the trail camera drama hopefully that's ended for you for the year and for everybody else that's listening like I said that's hopefully that nonsense stops for people uh and you know it's good that you put out the video and we're talking about it here just to get the message out right it's it's pretty easy to be a stand-up person just leave that stuff alone but let's talk about cornfields let's get back to october mid-october specifically and it seems like we were talking about the food shifts away from acorns away from beans away from those, you know, wet browse plants. Corn seems to be a big draw that time of year. So talk to me about your experience with cornfields and if you got one in your hunting area, how you would 
set up on it and i'm not talking about necessarily right on the field but if you know a betting area is like how would dan infall approach hunting an area with a cornfield you know within the vicinity well it depends on pressure obviously i mean I, i've got uh, i can think of a, a cornfield that i hunt that doesn't have any pressure around it but deer bed right alongside of it and i gotta slip right on the edge of that corn and hunt them on the edge of the corn you gotta remember it's just a, like big weeds or like cattails they'll come up to that in daylight but in a lot of cases, when you're hunting public or you're hunting pressured areas, is there a bedded back further and you got to go to where they're bedded. But having that destination or where they're going is the key. Um, you don't have to know where they're eating. You don't have to know what they're feeding on. You do know, have to know where they're bedding. But they'll bed in certain areas when they're feeding on that cornfield. That maybe they wouldn't be there if it was beans and the beans are dried up, right? So um, on corn years, they're bedding in certain areas. And once you start to learn that, then you, you know, you hunt the bedding area as they're leaving to go to the corn. But I'll see a tendency for deer to bed closer to the corn if they're, if they're eating the corn or closer to the acorns if they're eating acorns or closer to beans if they're eating beans, right? But I've noticed certain areas that are really remote, like mature bucks will always be there. You know what I, you know what I mean? So some bucks are just going to bed super remote and it would take them until 11 o'clock at night to get to that cornfield takes until 11 o'clock at night so you really got to learn the bedding and you got to figure out where that is i mean i would start close to the corn but i'd make my way back and obviously it just goes into the rules of um what's overlooked what's too remote for people to go to you know um what is everybody else missing kind yeah. of thing. i'd be kind of looking at a cornfield like uh what's the obvious sign everybody's going to be hunting and is there like a tree line on the backside that just kind of brushy and nobody'd really go over there and maybe that's a good spot for a deer to kind of hang where he wouldn't see you know um any human pressure i might try that you know i i have seen where um there'll be like a little um half acre island of trees or a pond within a cornfield that'll just have some big buck living in there for a couple of weeks you know and if a guy could slip in there and hunt, uh, he can do really well because he's isolated by all that corn and nobody really bothers him, you know? Yeah, those little islands in the corn, one of my best hunting spots in Michigan, and it's, you know, there were Michigan deer, so it's not like they were giant, but one of my best spots, it was exactly that. It was a swale in the cornfield. There was a small pond with, like, willows and one big cottonwood in there. And then about 80 yards away, the spot that I hunted, there was three or four apple trees and a fence line that was about 40 yards wide because that kind of had a low swale spot in it too and you know not always but semi-regularly there would be a decent buck in that swale and then you know just before dark he'd come out across the corn and pop out in the apples trees there and and for several years in a row i had real good encounters in that area so what more could you ask for you got you got corn and apples he's got his water he's got browse around the pond yeah, everything he needs in a little tight area where nobody goes. So this is an interesting spot. Let's talk about it a little more. There's a paved road probably 300 yards away. And then to the opposite direction of the paved road, there's a pretty big block of timber. And that's where all the neighbors hunted. You could see their tree stands along. You know, my, my buddy owns this cornfield. But you could see their tree stands along the property boundary. And I ran cameras in this area for a year or two and would have bucks on it pretty regular. And based on the timing of the camera, I knew they were close by, but I could never really figure out exactly why. And this is, you know, 10 years ago before I know what I know now. Well, one day I sat in that, what I thought at the time was a dumb spot in that little brushy fence row. And, and sure enough, they come out of that swale and, and that, that was the ticket. And then that turned out to be a really productive early season spot. Yeah. There's a good reason why we call those the fat, fat girl spots. Yeah. You feel a little stupid hunting them, but that's where you kill the big stuff, you know? You know, you had to be real sneaky getting in there, and, and occasionally there'd be a doe group in there, and, you'd, you know, you'd kick those out. So it wasn't a sure thing, but mm -hmm. if, if you could get in there clean, it seemed like I, like I said I had a lot of good encounters in there. Well, while we're talking about uh, October, another topic I want to touch on, Dan, is sign. One of the main themes of the hunting beast is hunting hot sign, and October is a month where a lot of sign is laid down. So first, mm -hmm. I'd like you to discuss the importance of being in the woods as often as possible and, and how that helps you pick up on that sign. Yeah, you, you know, when you talk October, um, things change so rapidly. Every week is so much different. 
you know, the, the, um, the sign changes, the deer activity changes, it shifts, the food sources are shifting, the leaves are turning. That month is a pretty volatile month. I, I uh, actually do my best in October, probably mid-October. You know, probably like, um, mm, I want to say 14th or 15th to, to probably the 25th of October. In that pre-rut period when they start laying down a lot of sign, but they don't, like, move all over the place. They're, they're not, like, chasing does yet or wandering great distances, but they start laying down a lot of sign. That sign glows, and it's easy to hunt. You know, it's easy to say, okay, he's coming out of that bed and area, he's going to that food source, or he's hanging here. Obviously, um, a rub that's up hip high is a lot better to look at than a track where you're kind of, well, it looks like it's a big buck, you know? Yeah. The rub actually locks it in a little better, to, for me anyways. Especially if it's high, you can see the tines are hitting high and stuff. So um, that amount of sign that's going on and it's fresh is really nice, you know, and um, really tells the tale of where those bucks are. And that's where you can, at that time frame, if you're going into a wood woodlot between the 15th, the 20th, 25th, anytime in there, like, well, actually any time to November, and you're not seeing big rubs, there ain't a buck there you want to hunt. Because they're just, they're so walked up at that time, they're laying down sign. So you can get on bucks a lot easier. You're going to find them a lot easier um, in that time frame, that mid-October, the late October time frame. And then following question to that for working stiffs and, and weekend warriors like myself, when I'm reading October sign, how can I tell if that sign is hot or a few days old? And how do I, how do I decide if I should sit in an area if I think the sign is a couple of days old, do I, do I sit there or do I keep moving on and look for greener pastures that time of year? Well, there's a couple of ways I could answer that. I mean, first of all, looking at the sign, um, you know, um, is it tacky? You know, is it wet? Is it dried out? If you look at the tracks, are the, are, are the tracks, is the dirt still moist, wet, or is it dried? When you look at where the, the hoof, hoofs knock over a piece of dirt, you take a twig and you touch it and see if that dirt has stuck to the other dirt. Because after a night or, or two of temperatures dropping and rising, that dirt will lock almost like a glue to the soil and it'll actually pop off, you know. Mm. But if, if it still like rolls around, it's pretty fresh. You know, can you see the detail of the track or is it faded? Is leaves and stuff blown into the tracks? You know, is the tree bleeding? Is there like a, a sap coming down the tree, you know, like a stain? Um, there's a lot of things and you got to get an eye for it. And there's something else I was going to say about that. Yeah. Do I sit there or move on? Yeah. Do you sit there or do you move on? Now that's a wide open question. I mean, um, I'm not sitting over a rub that's in the middle of an open forest. I don't care if there's 50 of them there. Right. I'm not sitting over it. I'm trying to figure out where that deer's coming from where he's moving in daylight. I don't want to hunt him at midnight. You got to remember mature bucks do 95% of their movement at night. So if you if you're looking at sign, there's a 95 percent chance he made it at night. As a matter of fact, I would say that during daylight they're less likely to make sign because they're a little paranoid. They're a little more at ease in the nighttime. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So most sign is night sign. So where I want to see that sign is around the bedding areas. That's where I want to hunt them because that's where they move in daylight. And if I, the second best thing is to see the sign, know the bucks in that woodlot, and then hunt the bedding areas. Because I found a lot of your real old bucks, especially on pressured land, where maybe they're the only big buck around, they got nobody to compete with. Nobody's going to bother them, so they don't have to mark up a bedding area, like claim it, right? So there might not be as much rubs around the bedding area if it's a mature buck. But if you have rubs somewhere, an all bucks rub, then you know he's there somewhere, and then you can hunt the, the bedding areas and try to figure out where he's coming from, you know. But whether or not you hunt sign that say it's coming out of a bedding area, well, number one, if you walk into that bedding area and you see it and you've got time to hunt that area down and you're going to hunt all the bedding areas, if you walk through there, you just burn that. So if it looks like good sign, you hunt it. If you're going into an area and you've got a weekend and you're done working, you got to go back to work and stuff, and uh, you're not going to hunt that whole area down, you could take and you could walk and you could look at that sign and go, okay, this might be good. Slip in or slip out. Slip into the next spot, look at the sign. Slip into the next spot, look at the sign. Slip into the next spot and look at the sign. And that's what I do like on the public land challenges or when I go out of state. 
uh, or to an area I'm only going to be for a short time. I will scout the whole, like from dawn till two in the afternoon. And then I'll go back to whatever looks best without ever blowing the bedding, just getting up to the edge of it. Right. And then I'll go back and I've done pretty well doing that. No, that's great tips there for sure. I think uh, the more I hunt or the longer I've hunted, that's one of the main takeaways for me is I don't have the opportunity to hunt every evening and I'm taking your, the latter approach there. I'm scouting in the mornings if I'm not hunting in the morning, especially before, you know, November, I hunt mostly evenings and trying to find that area that, that looks the best in hunting that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, I think that's all you can do in that situation with those time limitations. Yeah. What you got to look at too, like the, the guys hunting near home and he hunts a lot. I mean, if you got, uh, if you know of seven great spots, like seven great bedding areas, don't walk in there and look at it and say the sign doesn't look good and you can go hunt someplace else because you need to hunt those seven spots fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah. You go in there, you hunt it. But if you're on a road trip or you're limited or you've got wide open spaces and you're, you know, in seek phase trying to find bucks, well, then you're doing what me and you were just talking about. One of our previous podcasts, and you talked about finding sign in open wood lots, but maybe not necessarily having the bedding area. Think back to the story you told about the buck where it was bedded in the old cars and you threw the rock at it and, and you said there wasn't yeah. much, there wasn't much big buck sign around there at all. Right. So that's I mean, that's a prime example. They they can be in an area without a lot of sign if you know it's a could be a productive bedding area. Yeah, that uh that giant that I, I crawled up to in its bed and shot, that one there wasn't a rubber scrape within probably a hundred yards of that bed. And that one, I picked the sheds up there. I saw that buck there for two years at the scene almost every time there's a west wind. Yeah, guys got to take some chances sometimes, right? If it's got all the ingredients to be a good bedding area, but it's not blowing up a sign, I mean, it still might be worth a hunt. Right. Well, one uh, one last thing I want to talk about here, Dan, and th- I found this kind of interesting. So I'm a big fan of the uh, Penn State deer blog. I read their blog pretty regular. And mm-hmm. those guys aren't super serious deer hunters from what I can tell. But they're biologists and researchers, and they have an interesting take on things. I was reading one of their articles, and it said one in five or 20% of does are bred by the end of October, which was a little surprising to me. Uh, I knew there was some breeding going on, but I didn't think it'd be quite that high. So do you have any tactics or strategies that you purposely capitalize on for early breeding? And then kind of as a second part of that, you know, the late October tactics for breeding uh, I've read this a lot and we hear people talk about it on the forum, but I'd like to get your opinion. Do you think the same doe from year to year comes in the heat at the same time? So I guess what I'm asking is if you saw a doe being bred late October last year, let's say the 29th, are you heading back to that same area this year on the 29th looking for that doe and, and maybe bucks that she's attracting? Yeah, possibly. I mean, if I think that's, uh, that's I, I do think she probably uh, breed at the same time in the same area. But it depends on what I'm on to, obviously. Okay. At the time. But I don't think that that's a bad option. No, not at all. They, they repeat themselves pretty regularly. And then back to the first part of the question, what's your favorite or go-to? Are you doing anything different in, in late October that, you know, maybe to capitalize on that early breeding or, or are you just sticking to your bread and butter? I'm still hunting bedding, but I'm hunting rut bedding and, and or dull bedding. You know, looking at like uh, camera studies and stuff we've done, you know, you see bucks shift bedding areas and they're going into a, a rut bedding area, whether they're bedding with does or, or, or what, but uh, they're kind of hanging an area. Now, um, I'm looking at a study right now. I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm just about done with it and then we're going to release a video on it. And uh, it was a camera that uh, a fan ran and then he gave me the card to dissect he had a camera on a bed you know um in a in a remote swamp that uh, was one bed in in a bedding area and uh i i just saw and you probably saw it too on the the beast forum somebody made a post about how book bedding is random and that a biologist says it's random you know that through studies he can prove that it's random or something like that okay and uh I thought, you know what? It's kind of true, kind of not. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So looking at this study that I had, I mean, uh, this this camera was out there from late October 
like the 20, 20 something, the 28th or something, right? Through um, November 20th. And um, there's one mature buck in the study. And that mature buck um, visited that bed six times. Seems pretty random, don't it? Yep. So the thing is, uh, I took that as it, it had does bedding in there constantly the whole season. And from around the mid-October range, the bucks started coming. And I took it right away as that's going to be a buck bedding area. You're going to bed in there during the rut. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So for me, in this area, which the, the camera was in this area, I started seeing that, and I told you this before. I've said this many times. Around October 15th, I start seeing them start to turn towards looking for does, right? Not necessarily aggressively at first, but this this when they, you know, they start putting down scrapes. They start rubbing a lot. They start showing up where the does show up, right? Yeah. So I think about November 20th uh, or November 15th, 20th, something like that is about the tail end of that. So let's give that one month of um, uh, 15th to 15th is what I say is the month of rut around here when I have my rut activity. And after that, we go into gun season. It slows down. And so I know some places rut is a lot later. I mean, you don't see much October activity when I go down to Southern Indiana or something. You see it more into November. It's like 15 days later. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I'd agree. But here, here, that, that window of, uh, October 15th and November 15th is the window that I look at. All six of those times that big buck was in that bed was within that window. And how many times did he bed in one of the beds that wasn't on the camera? I would say probably just as many times, but I don't know that. I know what I've seen from the camera. Yeah. So let's say that's six times within that 30 day period. Literally that's a like, if you count the days, it's like what one in six, one in five chances. Yeah, pretty good. One in five. Yeah, man, I would hunt anywhere for a one in five odds. I mean, that's way better than you know. If you hunt five of those spots like that, you're likely going to kill one. Yeah, you know, if you have it dialed in. So I would say that yeah, that sounds random, but it's not really random. I mean, if it was any tighter than that, guys would kill them constantly doing what we're doing. You have to work for them, which you should have to work for them. That's what makes the thrill out of it. Agreed. But you got that time frame, and it's a matter of not only hitting the time right, but you got to be lucky enough to hit the right day. You know, you know what I'm saying? But I think personally that in that time frame, that buck was probably there just as many times as he was on the camera. Yeah. So I would say he was probably there like 12 times. So I would say your odds were probably like more like 40% or 50% of seeing him. You know, if, if you went in in the right time frame. Yeah, because the camera's not catching everything. Correct. Correct. It's, the camera was up in a tree aiming down at a bed. It had one little tiny window. And there's many beds in a bedding area. This is one bed. Now, granted, he didn't put it on the worst bed. He's going to put it on the one he thinks is the best bed. And it looked like a pretty damn good bed. And a lot of other bucks bedded or does bedded there. And you saw some dominance over the over the bedding area. But uh, you can kind of see where you can get that. Uh, you can get the uh, biologist's point of view. It, oh, and that's another thing, too. When I looked at those six times, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like uh, five of them were a south wind. So now, if you hunt on a south wind, it's probably like an 80% chance you're going to either spook him out of there or see him, but he's going to be there. Yeah, looking a little less random in that case. Correct. So, I mean, if you start putting things together, instead of just uh, looking at a study that only pinpoints how often that deer is there and say, oh, he was only there six times in a year. And that buck might only be there six times in a year. But if you're there on a south wind within that 15 days, it's no longer random. No, sure isn't. And like you said, if you've got four or five, six, seven of those spots where you've got that kind of trend, of course, nothing's 100%. Like you said, people would be killing them all the time and nobody's doing that. But that's the difference between uh, going out in a spot that's one in 20 or one in 50 as opposed to going to five spots that are one in five, you know, like you said, sooner or later, the, the stars are going to align for you. Right. And not every bed's created equal. Some are going to be better than others. And, um, you really don't know what you're working with unless you had a camera running over the top of it for a season. You know, mm -hmm. so a lot of it is guesswork, but you get better and better at it as you go, you know? Yep. 
Well, hey, Dan, I want to be respectful of your time. Appreciate you coming on again. And uh, for people that don't already know where they can find you, where are you at on uh, social media, and, and give us the, the forum, too. Yeah, you certainly want to check out my YouTube page and uh, watch some of the hunts unfold that we were talking about. And, uh, you know, that's uh, Hunt and Beast. All you have to do is search Hunt and Beast. I have a private forum that uh, uh, you're on. And that private forum is kind of cool because, you know, we allow free speech and stuff. So you can talk about whatever you want, unlike Facebook. Yeah, right. And uh, we are on Facebook because that seems to be the go-to place for everybody now, even though I prefer the forum. And, uh, you know, we're on most social medias. You can find us. I guess that's about it, right? Yeah. And Dan, uh, YouTube especially, you're putting out a lot of great content. And speaking of free speech, Dan, I know you also have a Rumble channel, which uh, I think a lot of people are trying to get the hunting community specifically to be a little more active on Rumble because they seem a little less prone to censorship. So if that's something you're concerned with, uh, Rumble's a great place to find Dan's content as well. Correct. And, and uh, I got to be on YouTube because that's where I make my money. Yep. But I make money from Rumble too if people go there and watch it. The thing about YouTube is they're using our money to to get us <laughs> yeah you know if, if you stand for the same principles i stand for you know but uh so i'd rather be just on rumble but uh financially um i can't take the uh, financial loss of what i make off of youtube sure there's there's not nearly the advertiser base on rumble that that youtube has so hopefully that'll change like i said and uh it starts one person at a time so that's why i wanted to bring up the rumble too and if you have the choice and you don't mind their platform check them out there appreciate it all right dan well hey thanks again uh looking forward to following along with your adventures this season as always hope to see you lay down another giant buck like you did last year and keep the trend up so good luck and uh, we'll talk to you soon okay thanks for having me on